Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Welcome back, everyone. Another piece on Evergrande. I won't dwell too much today on the details of the company, basically just because I've covered it reasonably well over the last few days. Today, I want to focus in on how this collapse ties into the overall Chinese economy. We're going to examine how the rise and fall of Evergrande is tied to certain economic choices made by policymakers over the last three decades. We'll wrap up with a piece on how a typical bankruptcy works and how this one is likely to be quite a bit different. Evergrande, as I'm sure you know by now, is China's second largest property developer, whose slow collapse has transfixed the markets over the last few weeks. Evergrande is the most indebted property developer in the world, and its on-balance sheet liabilities amount to nearly 2% of China's annual GDP. Its off-balance sheet obligations could add up to as much as an additional 1%. This on its own is pretty big. Some of the numbers that we're looking at are huge. But ordinarily, it wouldn't be such a big deal if it wasn't for the huge amount of leverage in the overall Chinese economy. I discussed this chart in yesterday's piece from the Bank for International Settlements, showing that Chinese businesses have almost twice the leverage of American businesses. The Chinese economy has been plagued by debt problems and what we call moral hazard for some time. Policymakers have been on and off attempting to reduce this, and these attempts have to a certain extent played into the collapse of Evergrande. It's quite a sticky situation for them to sort out right now. Okay, so there is and has been for some time a problem with excessive leverage in the Chinese economy. And this is no surprise to Chinese regulators who've been trying over the last few years to reduce the economy's over-reliance on debt. As part of these attempts, they implemented the three red lines for property developers in August 2020. The three red lines were hard limits on a property development company's debt-to-asset ratio, its debt-to-equity ratio, and its cash-to-short-term debt ratio. This policy had an instant effect on property development firms. Not only could they no longer borrow, but they were basically forced to quickly pay down their debts. This meant selling assets often at fire sale values, laying off staff and taking losses on the chin. This caused quite a bit of a spiral as the losses only made their ratios look worse, putting further pressure on these companies to continue to deleverage. Right now, Evergrande is the firm that's struggling the most, but the pain being inflicted by the three red lines on Chinese property developers is obviously much more widespread. So was this a foolish move, you might ask, by Chinese policymakers? It's kind of hard to say. It does make sense for them to worry about the high levels of real estate debt and debt in general. China's official debt-to-GDP ratio, which many argue is understated, has rocketed in the last five years to one of the highest debt ratios for any developing country in history. 
Real estate and real estate valuations are usually found at the root of all debt. Most loans are just made against hard assets like real estate, which can be repossessed. As loans are made against real estate, this causes real estate prices to rise. And then as real estate prices rise, larger loans can be made against the real estate. So this is kind of a self-reinforcing cycle, both on the way up, but also on the way down. In China, real estate developers typically sold apartments to home buyers off the plans, either months or years before even commencing construction. Now, this surprises people in other countries, but it makes a certain amount of sense in a rapidly developing country like China, where people have migrated from the country to the cities on such a huge scale as the economy has been growing. And in other parts of the world, there's usually enough urban apartments available if you move to a new city, making this kind of thing unnecessary. But this is just the way things work in a very rapidly developing country. There have been lots of issues with this model, where often the property developers cut corners in construction because the buildings have already been sold. And this has led to what the Chinese call tofu dreg construction, where the builder might have skimped on rebar or padded out the concrete with old bottles and things like that to save money. And if you're interested, uh, search the term tofu dreg construction on YouTube and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. So Chinese property developers typically get substantial deposits well in advance of beginning construction. They pay subcontractors and suppliers with commercial paper and receivables instead of cash. In addition, they frequently have financing arms or wealth management units that sell debt to retail investors and employees. And I talked about that in yesterday's piece. At this point, you can probably get a good impression of how leveraged the real estate sector is in China. And all of this leverage allowed it to become a major component of economic activity. It's estimated to account for over a quarter of the country's GDP. The huge leverage also inflated a property bubble. Average home prices have increased in value by 50% since 2015. Property prices are very high in China relative to household income, meaning that Chinese families borrow significantly more money than Americans do to buy a home. Often multiple generations of a family will pool their savings in order to buy a home. Now, the worst part of this is that this huge return that people have seen, this 50% return over five years that people have seen on property led to speculative overbuilding. Up to a quarter of the total housing stock, especially in the most desirable cities, is owned by property speculators. And because the value of apartments goes up so much, they don't even bother to rent out these homes. They keep them empty and in perfect condition for eventual resale, hopefully at a huge profit. Now, empty housing incurs significant economic cost. There's an economic cost in building something that doesn't get used, so it creates no economic value whatsoever. Okay, so the Chinese government do actually recognize this as a problem, and they're trying to reduce leverage and stabilize the housing market. Up until last August and the three red lines, 
borrowing for large Chinese companies had not been a problem. It was simply assumed that politically connected firms like Evergrande would never be allowed to fail. And so there was very little credit differentiation in the lending markets. In economics, they use the term moral hazard to describe this kind of situation, where there's no incentive to guard against risk in situations where you're protected from its consequences. A way of thinking about this idea is that you're more likely to lock the front door of your house when the contents of your home are uninsured. In the case of Chinese lending markets, moral hazard underpins everything. Now, Chinese regulators have quite deliberately decided not to bail out Evergrande, or at least it would appear that that's the case, with the goal of transforming and improving the financial system. There is a real goal in China to move away from this unproductive growth and focus on real growth. And this is necessary for their economy. Now, you can even see sort of echoes of this in the recent crackdown on Chinese tech companies. I, I was speaking to a friend of mine a little while ago, and I was quite surprised about the crackdown. I said, like, why would they kill off an industry like this? And he's much more knowledgeable uh, than I am about emerging markets. And he explained that the Chinese government doesn't think of things like ride-hailing apps or social media as being real technology. Their focus is on supporting hard technology, things like chips, semiconductors, 5G, and that sort of thing. So it is actually smart for regulators in China to concern themselves with moral hazard, but there's no easy solution to the problem that they face. Eliminating moral hazard from Chinese credit markets would entirely transform the pricing of risk and would significantly change the value of loans that lenders hold on their books right now. It's a noble goal, but the path to achieve it is extremely difficult to say the very least. This is because every loan that's been made over the last 30 years is based on how likely the borrower is to be supported by the government rather than on their ability to meet the debt repayment cash flows. Okay, so how might all of these changes affect global markets? Well, as I mentioned in my prior pieces on Evergrande, their estimated $310 billion in debt is larger than that of many sovereign governments. But most of that debt has been issued in China, which is a very large economy and, and to a reasonable extent can absorb it. Around $20 billion has been issued offshore, and this is trading at around 30 cents on the dollar right now. What's not being priced in is that foreign bondholders may get different treatment to local lenders, and we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. US dollar-denominated debt issued by other Chinese developers is much larger, and it trades right now at around 85 cents on the dollar markets might eventually decide that this debt should be priced more in line with Evergrande's bonds going forward. And this all depends on how the Evergrande situation evolves. Now, other sources of contagion are internal to China. So things like potential home buyers in China might worry about the news and hold back on buying new homes. And we are seeing that happening right now. They're worried about putting deposits down on unfinished apartments, and they're worried about wealth management products. And all of this is squeezing the developers. Contractors are demanding that they be paid up front, and they're reluctant to accept commercial paper from these big developers. 
The result of all of this, as Evergrande has already announced, is that construction projects are falling well behind schedule. And this kind of internal contagion could put quite a drag on the Chinese economy. And this is why the Chinese government will probably need to move quickly and sort things out here. Now, the biggest problem in this whole story is the Chinese policymakers can't really eliminate moral hazard and walk away from unproductive growth to focus on real growth while continuing with their politically determined GDP growth targets. And this is because the real growth, the growth they want to focus on, simply isn't enough to generate the economic activity to allow China to hit its GDP growth targets. The way China hits its growth targets is through malinvestment by the real estate sector and by local governments building unnecessary infrastructure. Whenever high quality growth declines as it did last year due to COVID, the government steps up malinvestment to make up the difference. And when high quality growth picks up, they then try to reduce this low quality growth as they appear to be doing right now. Chinese debt has grown rapidly since the 1990s, and up until the mid-2000s, this debt funded necessary and productive investment, which meant that the return on these investments grew faster than the debt did. So you invest in something, and it does well. Well, so you build a tunnel, and that uh, boosts the economy enough to more than cover the cost of funding that debt. Now, in the mid-2000s, debt began rising faster than GDP. And this just means that the cost of this additional debt was greater than the return achieved by investing it. And this is what I mean by malinvestment. If the Chinese government sets GDP growth targets above the country's high quality growth rate, malinvestment will continue in order to fill the gap and debt will rise faster than the economy's ability to service that debt. Now, if their plan is to do this, to grow debt faster than your ability to service it, you need creditors to lend on the basis of an implied guarantee that the government will make up the difference. You basically need moral hazard. Otherwise, no one is going to lend for these unproductive projects. The fallout of this whole situation will be really interesting for a variety of reasons. It'll give us some real insights into China's likely path going forward. Evergrande is essentially a company who has borrowed huge amounts of money and they've borrowed it from basically everyone. Banks, investors, suppliers, customers, employees. And it seems unlikely that these lenders knew what they were getting into. As I said yesterday, the wealth management unit looks like a Ponzi scheme. Now, normally when a big company goes bankrupt, you typically look at the company's capital structure and those with the most senior claims get paid back first. The most junior claims might get nothing and the ones in the middle might get pennies on the dollar. Often there's a goal to keep the core business running and in that case customers and suppliers might be treated better than is legally required. And how it works is the creditors work with management to figure out a plan that provides the best overall recovery for everyone. In the Evergrande situation, government officials can be expected to step in and decide who gets paid and who does not get paid. And this will be a political situation. 
In yesterday's piece, I said that there were two coupon payments that are coming this Thursday, a smaller local bond coupon and a larger dollar-denominated bond coupon payment. I predicted that they were more likely to make the payment on the local bond for a few reasons, and sure enough, they made an announcement shortly afterwards confirming that the local bond coupon will be paid, and we'll learn a lot more about everything else in the coming days. In China, because of this issue of moral hazard, it's difficult to know the risk of any loan. The Evergrande situation just highlights this issue, and it'll be years until we see how the overall situation works itself out. See you later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.